We'll try to get started on the first lesson in our series that we're going to present on the subject of the multitudinous Christ. This, this is a subject that has uh, attracted my personal attention for uh, some time or some years. Uh, it's been intriguing from the standpoint of personal interest. Uh, when we were trying to make up our mind to get on a subject of some consequence to come over here to the Kentucky Bible School, uh, I guess like everybody working with a subject, you have to uh, at least get a subject to start with and then move into it somehow. And we felt that there was a great deal of breadth, and even if we didn't uh, get into certain areas that maybe we wanted to, we could still uh, touch certain surface areas or, or go a little deeper, as we might decide, and uh, had, had a great deal of flexibility to it. Uh, on the other hand, the, the depth, uh, even as we may uh, discuss it, can range from the uh, elementary or semi-elementary to uh, much deeper than I'm able to present it to you. We are going to get into an area of what we would call prophetic uh, diagnostics, and you know how good we all are at that. Uh, and the real reason we're doing this uh, is really one, and that is interest. Uh, I think we would rather be wrong in, in diagnosing some particular event or some sequence of events uh, and still have some awareness that, that there's some involvement uh, in the program of God and ultimately working toward the uh, either the coming of Christ or after he has come doing certain things that are to be accomplished in the earth. And we do feel that uh, it is a very rewarding study, a very good subject. Uh, whether or not we handle it that way, uh, we don't know at this point. And every student here would do well to give himself uh, to a further consideration uh, of subject matter around this area. My recommendation would be to go home from the Bible school and, and look over the notes that I'm going to give you. And uh, you can take them and re-examine them and look up some of the scriptures and... and uh, look up some of the related works that you might want to uh, trace down and help yourself uh, in that direction. Uh, also, before getting into the strict subject matter, uh, I have a certain appreciation for the uh, uh, period of time that we have given to this, uh, to the study, not of this uh, restricted subject of multitudinous Christ, but of the Eurekas in general in the uh, Richmond area. That uh, the brothers have met there for a period, I think, of about nine years on this subject. And we're down to the last three pages. We didn't quite get it finished before we came over here. And uh, the class has varied from five or six people up to a dozen or thirteen. And uh, we have stayed with it, and I think that I, I just speak as one of them. Uh, that it has been a very uh, worthwhile undertaking. Uh, I, I know nobody would enter into this and say, well, I want to 
do this for the next nine years necessarily. But uh, it's a little here and a little there, the way that we are able to pick these things up. I might say in, in defense of, of the subject that I have heard quite a few people that either because of its length or because of its suggested complexity, that they, uh, they're scared, really, of uh, Eureka, that somehow the, either the word or something bothers them. Uh, but I say, do not fear this book because there's so much basic, fundamental uh, gospel truth there. There's a lot of prophetic uh, and historical aspects, too. But there's a, a, an immeasurable amount of wealth in that book that no person should deny himself uh, of. As I said earlier in the uh, preliminaries that we gave yesterday, that we are, we're very cognizant that uh, uh, there are young people here that, that uh, may feel that this study is, is beyond them, but uh, we're, we're taking this into consideration. I think they will be able to, uh, to get some points from what we're talking about. I'd like also to express, express my uh, gratitude uh, for the people of the Henderson Ecclesia who have continued to sponsor the Bible School and they have directed it, uh, I think, in a way that uh, people feel uh, very good and very comfortable, uh, that God's Word will be uh, properly set forth, that uh, it, I, I feel safe in saying that it's the uh, intent of every uh, speaker or uh, person is called upon to perform in this way, uh, to do this in such a way that uh, God's name will be ultimately honored uh, in each individual here. As far as the interruption, I'm somewhat like Brother Ken. Uh, we don't want to be interrupted to the extent that it bothers our uh, presentation. But if, if we're in the middle of something and somebody feels we haven't explained it, I certainly would welcome uh, somebody just raising their hand and say, would you kindly go over that again? Or uh, do you mean such and such? And uh, uh, confine your questions in this way. We, we may hold uh, 10 minutes at the end of each class for the uh, specific questions, or of course we'll be downstairs in the afternoon and we'll uh, try to answer questions there too. So if you, uh, on your notebooks, if you can take a few notes, I, uh, I think you'll help yourselves. I have a, a, a series, uh, I think there's six pages to the notes that I have, and I'm not going to hand them out until Wednesday. <laughs> and the reason, reason for this is, is that uh, it's the speculative material in here, that uh, you've got all the answers and you, you're already ready to throw me out. Uh, before the first day, maybe. And uh, so our background is going to be the first two days, and in the last three days, if, if our plan runs according to schedule, we will uh, be dealing in the, uh, again, I'll refer to them as speculative items, and uh, we'll hand out the lessons at that time. The background of this subject is uh, very basic. The, uh, and this, I think, gives us confidence that we are talking uh, along straight lines. When we go to the teaching of Jesus, uh, the teaching of uh, the successor apostles, uh, we know we can be on no safer ground. 
and two or three verses we'd like to refer you to and in the teaching of Jesus uh, will form the uh, basic background of, of our uh, entire subject. Matthew 16:27. when Jesus was preaching the gospel, he said, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, or messengers, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now that really is, that is our subject. That's what we're talking about. The return of Christ. There's an there's a aspect of glory when he returns. And every man that is deemed worthy will be rewarded according to his works. Now we have basically uh, our subject right there. Later on he probably confirmed this when he said, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Well, again, this is uh, not exactly redundant, but he is saying in this verse that there is a throne. Now, we didn't have a throne in the verse in Matthew 16, 27. This is Matthew 25, 31, the second verse we quoted. So we have the Son of Man coming. We have him in glory. We have an attendant group, uh, and we have a throne. And again, when he spoke to the twelve apostles, he said in Matthew 19:28, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now these things are fundamental, uh, first principle teaching that we hold to and uh, commend to all with whom we come in contact. So we have six points these are incidentally are given to us in our notes, but if you want to write them down again, that's fine. But these are six fundamental uh, teachings from these verses uh, that we want to hold to throughout this week. One, he will come in glory and power. We, we defend this position. Two, that he will come with holy ones. That is, he will be associated with a multitude. Three, he comes to establish and sit upon his throne. And four, that the regeneration will be at this time and not another. Five, that the time for judging his household is concurrent with this time. And six, that the Israelitish ascendancy will be accomplished at his coming. Now we use the verse uh, where he spoke to the twelve, uh, where they would be sitting on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel as our proof. And we're all aware that there are other uh, scriptures that allude to the same uh, fact. So it is the last number six, the Israelitish ascendancy will be accomplished at this time or at his coming. Now it is our purpose this week to emphasize the fundamental doctrine of the return of Christ to this earth to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And we hope to inquire into the details given in scripture for an anticipated order of events. And we are quick to acknowledge that there is a bit of speculation which we hope some of you will treat or all of you will treat just as that, that we might be wrong. If we took a list of two, five, or 50 items and we've got number two and number three reversed, obviously our whole list is wrong. So we, uh, uh, I forget, I think it's maybe 16 points that I've tried to enumerate when you, you'll get the notes on it. If I'm wrong on number two and, and should, have, should have had it down at number three, obviously my whole list is somewhat uh, tainted by this. So this is what we're saying 
uh, in the area of speculation. We may, we most likely are. Some event happens tomorrow, and we say, well, I, I didn't see that right. Something happened to, uh, that I didn't expect, and uh, therefore we're wrong. Uh, but our purpose, as we've said before, in speculating in these areas is to reach as far as we possibly can into the complete picture that deity has given to us with the single hope that each student will marvel at deity's ingenious developments and his arrangements, that he is working gradually and effectively, and that as a result of, of marveling at his works, that we will more earnestly seek to learn of his ways. Now, we should all be aware that the ability, uh, and I think we are, to uh, recognize a chartered event, if we memorize that step A, B, C, and D uh, occur in this manner, this is not nearly as important uh, as possessing the type of character that an appreciation of God's revelation to man should produce. It has been said by uh, men of wisdom that when a man ceases to wonder or to inquire, he ceases to learn. And we're hopeful that we, we treat our subject this way, that we are inquiring or we're wondering if this might not be the case in some, some instances. Uh, we want to learn what God has outlined uh, for us in the way of prophecy uh, as much as we can. In the 14th uh, verse of the book of Jude, Jude records there that Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Now we can see from this that this is by no means a solo work. The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Now deity who named himself Yahweh, you know, this was not a name that some other passed upon him, but he declared unto Moses that my name is Yahweh. I'm giving myself this name. And the substance of his name indicated that I will be manifested in multitudes. So he is to be revealed, according to Jude, in holy myriads, or the word indicates thousands, or as another uh, place has it, in clouds of holy ones. Clouds. This same design is uh, presented to us in the uh, tenth chapter of Daniel, uh, which we'd like to turn to, in, in the fifth verse of Daniel 10. As a certain man clothed in linen, or the margin, if you will look to there, is a man of one. Now, on the surface, we might say, well, well one certainly is not a multitude. Uh, the fifth verse, Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. Uh, to briefly answer my own uh, question there, is one a multitude? Uh, my answer is yes. When that one is uh, a central figure and made up of many contingent parts. Uh, the same as we might say that deity and his creation is one great work, that all things are bound up in him, that Christ and deity are one, 
in the sense that one is bound up or subservient or created by or has a relation to uh, the originator. Uh, in the seventh chapter of Daniel, there is a picture that we get in the ninth to the fourteenth verses of the uh, development of the multitudinous Christ. This is in the vision of the four beasts. And starting at the ninth verse, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit. This indicates the futurity of, of Daniel looking down the scene of time uh, to a certain point. And the description of this Ancient of Days, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. That's the horn of verse 8. Uh, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Now here we have our picture again, with clouds. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him a dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Well again, what Daniel saw is the return of Christ to set up the kingdom on the earth, in, in very simple terms. He saw some features and descriptions, a man of one. He saw a, a clothing, and, and a, uh, in the ninth verse, garment white as snow, and, and certain features like this that, that has significance. But, but the substance, again, is return of Christ, set up the kingdom uh, in the proper uh, sequence of time, judgment seat, uh, rewarding of the righteous, uh, reigning on earth for a thousand years, and things of this basic fundamental nature. Now we've uh, placed on the board some uh, going back to the 10th chapter of Daniel that show the uh, gradual, I guess we can refer to it, development of the, uh, of the man, you or I, if we're fortunate enough to be in that group, or preferably, as, as our discussion has it, the uh, multitudinous man. In other words, the combined group. If all of us are fortunate enough to attain into this station, uh, we can say it of ourselves, aggregately, that we will be in that multitudinous uh, body of Christ. Uh, God, as we all very well know, does not just indiscriminately come down and say, well, I'll take this person and this person and that person, and we, hope we will have a group, and we will give them immortality based on my having just hand-picked them here and there. Uh, his arranged word tells us that these are they who overcame. Are there certain stipulations before you are eligible to be accounted as one of that group? And uh, it is a gradual process. Uh, in the 10th chapter of, of Daniel, we tried to get the verse, the 8th verse there, shows a position of Daniel in a vision. And uh, the 
wording in that uh, I've just picked a, a small phrase of each verse. Uh, maybe I can read the entire verse. Uh, Therefore I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Well, this was the weak, uh, fleshly position that is inherent or common to us all. That uh, the Greek word is asthenia, if that's the correct pronunciation, and a similar reference is uh, Hebrews 11.4. In other words, that, that word asthenia is asthenia is used in Hebrews 11.4 uh, to give us the indication of this meaning of weakness or, uh, there's another word, I the weakness of the flesh. Sister Esther just, would just tell me before the class, she went to the doctor two or three years ago. She was basically feeling run down. And uh, the doctor says, you've got asthenia. Is that the right pronunciation? Asthenia, I'm sorry, I, I don't have it. He says, you've got asthenia. Well, I said, we've all got it. Uh, to, some, to some degree, uh, but, but this is our condition. And before we reach this uh, final uh, position of strength, we've got to go from weakness through some gradual process of uh, building that weak man up until he gradually ascends to a, a strong position. In the ninth verse of this 10th chapter of Daniel, uh, Daniel in his vision proceeds on into a, a state of where he was in a deep sleep on my face and my face toward the ground. Well, this, uh, we feel, is the passing off in the normal course of events of, of our weak bodies after an allotted time of three, score, and ten. Uh, we are very likely, unless by reason of strength we live another five or ten years, to pass into the state of death. And this in a deep sleep, as it's been referred to with Abraham and many others, uh, indicates the sleep of death. And we've used the Greek word analusis here, which is... Again, uh, dissolution or departure is sometimes translated. Uh, I think this verse here, 2 Timothy 4, 6, is, is in the chapter where Paul says, I have fought a good fight and kept the faith, but he says, before he said that, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, I'm about to die. And, and my weakness has deteriorated to a point of where I'm going to dissolve, if you will, as a, a parallel word for this uh, dissolution. So if we go no further than this, reaching from the weak state to the dissolved or, or dissoluble state, uh, that's the end. There's no further potential strengthening for us. But in the case of Daniel, as he again looks forward into the uh, course of God's program, down in the 10th verse, uh, he says, Behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees, and upon the palms of my hands. So this is not face down, prone, and, and having no life, but he's uh, beginning to revive. Uh, and just as the scriptures teach us in the course of resurrection, there is a revival or rebuilding. This word, uh, rebuild, raise, egero, is used uh, again in Acts 10.40. That word is used only once in the scripture where it is translated resurrection. It's used in, uh, in many other places and has many other forms, egeris or eger, something else without the O on the end. But the idea contained in it is a raising or rebuilding. And even in resurrection, 
we have a, uh, I guess we refer to it as a rather uh, mechanical thing, but there has to be a rebuilding, uh, much in the sense that if we can visualize the creation of Adam. Adam didn't just happen and pop into existence, but it says the Lord God formed him out of the dust of the ground. Many of us may see a, a molding or, or fashioning process whereby he is, is built. Well, in the case of people that have passed into the sleep of death, unlike Adam, they have to be rebuilt. Of Adam, we can say he was built. But of those of us who may go into the sleep of death, it is necessary that we be rebuilt or refashioned in order that we can hope to finally attain to the state of strength. And the next step in Daniel's process, verse 11, is that he stood trembling. Well, first he was prone, then he was up on his hands and knees, and then he, he stood. So this is an upright position, and it's progressive. Uh, we're advancing. We're, we're getting somewhere with our project. Uh, the word here we've uh, selected is anastasis, which is used some 40 times in the uh, New Testament, since these are all Greek words, they're all New Testament. First uh, Corinthians 15:21 is just one, one place where it's used, and this word is translated exclusively resurrection uh, in the Bible. Well, the word resurrection is not just something we define and say that's what it means. Uh, this word is akin to it. In other words, we cannot have resurrection without having a construction process. So here, if we're on our hands and knees, and here, if we're completely standing upright, we can say, I have stood, or I am standing. And that's exactly what the resur resurrection word means, standing again. And uh, I don't have it in my notes, but I know we did study in Eureka that this... Uh, uh, Dr. Thomas gave a, not a long dissertation, but a couple of paragraphs on the word resurrection. In other words, uh, perhaps maybe our illustration with Adam might have some uh, uh, point there that we could make. In Adam's case, it might have been surrection if, if we were to define what is this new created man standing up here in the Garden of Eden. We could say, well, that's, that's surrection. That's the process of having felt. But in the case of men who have been in the state of sleep of death, when they stand again, it's re, a second time, coming forth from the grave, being rebuilt, and standing again. Now in the 12th verse, the, uh, can't, can't read the dawn of the light, I am come for thy words. Now what would this indicate to us? Judgment. We all recognize, or should recognize, that resurrection in itself is, is of no value other than just a restoration to life. And we can say, if we reach these various stages, that if I'm here, all that really can be said of me is that I'm standing up, that I have life in my bones, and previously I did not. But uh, I must go from this point to this point in order uh, to have some uh, recognition in deity. Uh, so after I'm standing up, it's necessary for me to come for thy words. Well, what words will be spoken uh, to me at this point? Somebody give us a suggestion as to something that might. Uh, here we are, Paul again in, in 2 uh, Timothy 4.1. Somebody read that verse. Or, well, I, I guess you're, our, uh, I'm in a position here where you can hear me a little better maybe. 
I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Uh, that doesn't give me really all the uh, information of what the judgment is about. But what he's really saying is that Second uh, Corinthians 5.10 is a good, good reference, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may give account of those things done in the body. So at the judgment seat, it will be determined what I have given or done in the body, whether it's acceptable or unacceptable. So having stood up, I must hear, or I must come for thy word. And as Daniel in his vision has shown, shown us here, that this is the course of all men from, uh, who descend from Adam, that they're a weak person, a weak constitution, that they will dissolve, that they must be rebuilt, they must stand up, they must be judged. And once they're judged worthy, of course, we remember the picture that they had at the Arkansas Bible School. You've got two roads there. One, one goes to oblivion and one goes to eternal life. But we're assuming here that we're all going to be successful and that we will hear these words or, or, or reap of this condition, He strengthened me. And that's down in the 18th verse of the uh, 10th chapter of Daniel. And we use the word there, ex-anastasis, which is used only once in the Bible, and that's in Philippians uh, 3.11. And that means a standing up out of. In other words, it's better than just standing up. It's a standing up out of this, I guess we could say, the massive congregation. If there were a hundred or a thousand people standing up, and these thousand people go to be judged, and fifteen or a hundred of these thousand are said, you go over here on the right hand, they are standing up out of, or one word I think that's been used quite effectively is elevation or, or promotion, uh, graduation. Uh, that's the thought. In Philippians 3.11, Paul says there, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And the way it's, it, it is given to us in that uh, 11th verse, uh, is not an expression that we would use as baptized believers. Uh, I, I don't say to some person here today, I hope that I will be resurrected. Uh, you know, I hope that, that this is maybe a possibility that might come my way, uh, definite or indefinite. We recognize that there are principles laid down that say that resurrection is common to a certain group of people, those baptized into Christ or those in covenant relationships will have a resurrection. We must all come forth to the judge. Will we all stand up out of? There is our question mark. Here we have a, a quantitative uh, decision type thing where some will and some will not. Here, speaking of this class, they will. They will be resurrected, those in Christ. After their judge, some will stand up out of and some will have a second death. So the standing up out of, we can see very well what Paul was saying. If by any means, or by the struggle that he uh, was giving in his life, I might attain unto that standing up out of. In other words, he wasn't talking about, about this condition, but he was talking of the ex-Anastasius, or out from. So once he stood up, it was his ambition, uh, we might say, to stand further or to be elevated uh, to this uh, position of ex-Anastasius. And again, we go back to say that this is just the basic first principle teaching of the nature of man, of the mortality that's common to him. If he's going to get rid of this mortality, he's got to go through these steps 
of uh, progressive uh, operation uh, by God's uh, order and plan and execution. Moses, uh, I don't know if there's a lot of writing for you. Again, I've got that in the notes and it's all typed out for you. You can have it. Does somebody have a question? That's my understanding, yes. Philippians 3.11. Well, that is not the original word, but I agree with you, that we ourselves I don't want to call us guilty, because what we're really saying is that, you know, we're, we're, we think of the resurrection day as a day when we're going to be accounted worthy. And, but we, we just say resurrection and, and mean this in our own uh, discussions with each other, I think. And Paul, when he, uh, I, you know, I don't know the exact verse or occasion you have in mind, but if he did, and I'm sure he did, uh, in the first uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he has done this. And he's told us many times that word anastasis is used in that chapter, and he has inferred that, that this is the uh, uh, utopia, if you will, that man is striving for. But again, if you analyze that chapter thoroughly, you will see many times, particularly starting at the 35th verse on down to the end of the chapter, where it is sort of, a, I would say it's a progressive treatment again of, of the growth of grain and, and uh, things like this. But that word, I believe, again, I'm going to Young's or Strong's Concordance, uh, and I believe it's only used uh, in one instance. In the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 26 to 29, Moses also refers to this uh, multitudinous group. Recorded there are these words, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, and I'm reading from a translation, writing heavens in thy help, and in his majesty of clouds. There is none like the God of Jeshua, riding heavens in thy help, and in his majesty of clouds. Now we want to visualize, if we will, uh, God, or deity, operating here with majesty of clouds, plurality. The eternal God is the refuge, even beneath the powers of Olam, and he shall drive out the enemy from before thy faces, and shall say, destroy. Israel shall then dwell safely. The fountain of Jacob shall be alone upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall distill dew. Thy blessings, O Israel, are these. Who is like thee, O people saved by Yahweh? The shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy splendor? And thine enemies shall waste away because of thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. Now notice, if you will, in the 27th verse that we read there, that we used the word, or adopted it from... Uh, Brother Thomas is writing, of Olam rather than everlasting. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this Olam, and for those of us who think we might be partially familiar with it, that it is a Hebrew word. Uh, it's uh, O L A H M. I don't know which one is right. Uh, it's O L A M or O L A H M. Uh, 
in the uh, concordances, it's O-L-A-M, uh, and it's predominantly rendered uh, ever or forever or everlasting, I think, in this verse, uh, by the various translators. Now, the word signifies a measurable period of time, although indefinite. It is measurable. Now, everlasting in the term that we speak of it is, is shooting a, an area of time, I suppose, out to infinity. That it doesn't, it just doesn't have a stopping point in many people's minds when they say everlasting. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Well, this word that's translated everlasting and, and many, many times in the Bible signifies something that has a measurable period, although indefinite. I may not know what it is, uh, but it is uh, measurable. And Olam, uh, more often in our definition, is a hidden period or a concealed period. For a period of time in our prophetic studies, uh, if, if we were to visualize ourselves living back in the uh, time of Abraham, and, and somebody said, well, after a certain period of time, the Messiah will be born. Well, there was an Olam, or a period of time, from Abraham to Christ of some roughly 2,000 years, but we wouldn't know when it was, or, or unless it had been revealed, or, or even from a prophetic standpoint, we might have had to unravel it and say, well, I think that Olam is 2,000 or 1,900 years or something like this. But once it happened and we started counting off the years, we'd say, well, that Olam was exactly 1,947 and a half years or something. <clears throat> and in prophecy, it designates absolutely a certain period to exist. In other words, this Olam is going to exist without defining its beginning or ending. And I think it's quite interesting and somewhat relevant to our, our study since we're really talking in the multitudinous Christ of the attaining of the spirit nature, ultimately, uh, which will say to us, we have everlasting life. Well, we're not going to try to measure in our class how long that we may uh, live and, and what... Uh, uh, capacity we may operate with, with that life, but if we look at the first five places in the Bible that the word uh, Olam is used, uh, I think there's just a little interesting uh, factor there that we might uh, enjoy looking into. The first place it's used in the Bible is Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, Behold, a man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, or live for the age, or for the olam, or for a certain period. Uh, therefore the Lord God did such and such. Uh, that, that is the first place that olam is used. Now just compare that with Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now the word translated Olam there is what? Can you pick it out? Always. My spirit shall not everlastingly strive with man. Well, my spirit shall not for an indefinite period strive with man. Uh, but the word the translators have selected here is always. But the word in the original is uh, Olam. Uh, Genesis 6, 4, the very next verse. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also, after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, 
the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, can you pick out Olam in that verse? Of old. Well, there's nothing in there that indicates that these were men endowed with eternal life, is there? So we don't want to restrict our interpretation of, of everlasting to be this narrow. The way it's used in this verse, these were mighty men which were of old, that is, which had a dating of such and such a time, and they've come down to this time, and that is an aeon or olam. The next place it's used is Genesis 9, 12. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. What is that word there? Perpetual. Again, olam, aeon, perpetual, or everlasting is the word, may, eternal, it's translated. And the next occasion is Genesis 9, 16. And the bow, speaking of the rainbow, shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Or it's obvious in that verse that it's everlasting. But of these first five verses that it's used in the Bible, it's translated in five different ways. Uh, perpetual, of old, everlasting, and so forth. So it's better to grasp the meaning of the word than it is to just say, uh, carte blank, that Olam or Aeon always means time immeasurable, uh, out in space uh, infinity and this type of thing, uh, because it is not quite correct. Now the Greek word Aeon, which we most of us are, are familiar with, A-I-O-N, uh, here we have Hebrew and here we have Greek. Uh, the word aeon was uh, used by the uh, Septuagint translators uh, for olam. In other words, they're saying that if you're talking Greek, this means the same thing if you're talking Hebrew. Now, we know that we have problems communicating the same word in different languages, uh, but in the Bible where we read of aeon or, or, or if we read of some uh, ex-father like Dr. Thomas, he quite often will say aeonian life, meaning uh, to possess an abundance of life in the kingdom age or, or beyond or some period. Uh, we want to be able to try to decipher, decode, and understand uh, what he's talking about. It can be said that the aeon of man is three score years and ten. That's his package. It's measurable. Uh, it can be said that the aeon of deity, now here we have something that you're going to raise a question on me probably. How can we measure that? Does he have an aeon? Yes, he does. But it's measurable only to him. What, what do the, the scriptures say concerning his eternity? He's from everlasting to everlasting. Well, I can't comprehend that. And I don't know whether anybody here that, that suggests that they can. I doubt it. Uh, but in the mind of deity and in the wisdom and power and intelligence of him with whom we have to do, it is measurable to him. It's not measurable to me. So it can be said that there is an aeon uh, of deity. I think perhaps uh, mathematically I might be wrong on that, so don't challenge me too strongly. Uh, the kingdom age, or the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ and the multitudinous king-priest who will reign with him, uh, is spoken of as the aeon of the aeons. In other words, the uh, poetic maybe significance of this is that this is the chief aeon uh, as far as God's dealing with mankind. That it is the 
chief aeon, or the aeon of the aeons. Uh, there are probably other expressions that we might say that's, that's the, uh, the, well, the best of the best, or the, something like this. So we're saying the aeon of the aeons, we're talking of the ultimate standing up out of position and time when this group of people who have developed from weakness to strength uh, will live and exist uh, in an age, uh, again, measurable, but it is the chief aeon of all of God's aeons. Now, there's an abundance of testimony uh, of the coming of Christ in power and great glory. We're not going to give this to you in, in detail. We must have necessity for the time consideration. Uh, just give you the references. Isaiah 24:23 is the one we have jotted down. And Isaiah 25:6-8, Acts 17:31. God hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man we ordained. We all know that one. And Second Thessalonians 2:8. These all indicate the coming of Christ in power and great glory. I think it's very common as we graduate from, from a, a childish intelligence, if you will, uh, along the progressive uh, intelligence ladder, that, that we have misconceptions or elementary conceptions. Uh, and even this uh, idea of a multitudinous Christ has to come into somebody's mind uh, at a point. I, I mean, I'm very frank to admit that there, were, there was a time in my life when if somebody said multitudinous Christ, I'd say, what are you talking about? I've heard of Christ coming. You know, the man Christ Jesus is going to be here and he's going to do certain things, but don't involve me with a multitude because I just haven't heard this. What, what kind of talk is this? Uh, where's your scripture proof and, and such uh, talk? Uh, so when we think of Christ coming in power and in great glory, there's an association here. What, what kind of power is he going to have? What is the glory? Is it just a shining light that emanates from one man where he's so bright you can't, can't look upon him? Uh, is this the glory we're talking about? What is the power? Is it an individual power where he can hurl thunderbolts or, or do some magnificent work that, that no man previous to this has done? Uh, get in your mind, uh, from the reading of these uh, various testimonies that we're offering, that in power and in great glory is an association of redeemed ones who have conformed to the image that he, uh, I think we could say, originally built of his own uh, character. He pleased the Father in all that he did, with the end result that the Father went through this process with him. And he came to the standing up out of period and attainment, and he is desirous that all others who will conform to this pattern will go through this same uh, process. In the uh, book of Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, our commonwealth, and again, I'm in Dr. Thomas's translation, subsists in heaven. The King James will differ a little bit. Out of which we look for the deliverer, the Lord Jesus anointed, who shall transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of this glory. And to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he wrote, Your life is hid with the anointed one in the deity. When the anointed, our life, shall appear, then shall ye also be manifested with him in glory. This is the point we're trying to make, is the body of glory. Manifested with him in glory. 
The citizenship of the saints subsists in heavens or in high places or in a, a rank that is unapproached by any other ranking. It's the highest rank among mankind. And it's in the holy and most holy states we might uh, parallel it to. That, that is our citizenship in the holy and most holy states. They, that is the ecclesia or the saints, put on Christ in the obedience of faith and are then in him. They're in him. They're bound up or constitutionally wrapped up uh, with him or in him. And through him we read that they have access to the Father. We have to think about that to, to get its uh, uh, real impression, I think. They have access, being in him, to the Father. I don't think there's anybody that can dispute the uh, magnanimity of this position. And putting him on, their names are engraven on his breastplate, and their citizenship begins. Their names are with him within the veil while they are in the heavenly state the ecclesia, upon the earth, whereas members of his body, having their hearts sprinkled with the blood of sprinkling from an evil conscience and the body washed with pure water, they are awaiting his return. And by them who are looking for him, he shall be seen of them a second time without sin for salvation. The description or revelation of the multitudinous Christ is perhaps best illustrated in the first chapter of the Apocalypse. We want to examine some of the uh, phrases and terms of this first chapter to broaden our understanding uh, on the subject. When we believe and accept the first principles of the truth, we have the necessary foundation to comprehend the development of the perfect man's similitude. That's all we need is the first principles of the truth, that we understand that we're mortal, that we need salvation, that salvation has been provided according to a certain scheme, uh, that Christ is the central figure of this. If we understand certain of the features about him and what he's doing and what he's going to do, we've got the foundation. That's all we need. We don't have to say, as many people have erroneously said, and really rob themselves of the beauty and privilege of this, that that's too deep for me. Uh, you know, leave that for some of the students and all this type of, uh, of uh, talk. It's not right. Uh, We've got the foundation, and God expects us to go on, to build up, to develop progressively, uh, to learn to appreciate him, to learn to respond. And you cannot do this without information, intelligence, digestion of these things uh, to this uh, gradual approach. All of us, and, and again, maybe some of the young people might think a little more seriously on this. Well, well I, I think I'll take that back. Because maybe the older people, are, are the, they've had more years and probably are guilty over a longer period of time of sometimes having this, respect, uh, this uh, opinion. And I'll admit that, that there were years when I had it, uh, and it was because I was ignorant, that I did not know of some of these things that we're trying to uh, bring forth. But I call it a level of spiritual ignorance, that God needs us. I think Brother Paul Crafton spoke of this uh, Sunday at the memorial service that God needs us, that we want salvation, that, that what are you going to give us? Uh, why have you chosen to serve Christ? Well, because I'm looking for salvation. Well, this, this is a level, I, I don't, maybe I'm too strong in calling it spiritual ignorance, but uh, if you can soften it down a little bit, and, and maybe you know what I'm talking about. 
our personal ambitions of salvation are paramount to us. That I'm trying to get in the kingdom. I, 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 you know, this type of thing. We must come to the realization of what the scriptures tell us, and that is that the realization of what God wants from man, that you and me individually, is that his glory, and we've been speaking about Christ coming in his glory, and we're not talking so much about individual participation, but the total picture of glory is what is the ultimate objection. That's what we want. That's what I should want. I should say it's more important to me that God's glory fill this earth than that I should be a part of it. Uh, one conclusion that we can draw from that is that the higher objective, that is, if our objective is that God's glory be in this earth, that we're working for that and that alone, that it will assure the secondary objective, that I will be there. But if, I, if I'm so bound up with I've got to get there and my whole uh, big important function in life is, is looking after me to this selfish degree, uh, I'm forgetting of this whole grand picture that God is trying to uh, present to us uh, in his overall picture. Actually, it's the Bible definition of love. I believe Brother Ken mentioned this in, in, in his talk last evening, that uh, our, our love is, uh, is really the love of God. It's not the love of man. The love of man is secondary. But if, if it is very important to us, and it should be, that God be magnified, that his word be held uh, in high esteem, that, that his doctrines be uh, esteemed correctly, that his ways be defined uh, adequately and correctly, then we've got, in my opinion, uh, the Bible definition of love. This is better than uh, patting somebody on the back and, and wishing them well in their little uh, mission of uh, false doctrine or wherever they may be headed. Uh, we're missing the point a great deal. Uh, if we limit our spiritual uh, uh, intelligence uh, to that level, it is not our wanting to be saved that is the important thing. It is our wanting His holy name to be hallowed above all else. That perhaps is why in the Lord's Prayer that this is given such a number one spot. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This is first. It's not give us this day our daily bread and then hallowed be thy name. It's hallowed be thy name first in our lives, then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and take care of our own individual uh, considerations. So we recite again that the better our grasp of the fundamentals of the gospel, the better our appreciation of the prospects of the multitudinous apocalypse. We want to understand the events in Eden and their meaning. Now, we're not going to go into a lot of but we, we want to understand it. That's all I'm going to say. But it's, it's imperative that we have this foundation. Uh, man was not created estranged from deity. Some people have suggested thoughts uh, this way down through the years. The common expression, Adam was created mortal. It shows uh, an incorrect perception of what the scriptures teach. Uh, I don't have the verse in mind. Uh, but it says in so many words that he became a sinner. That is, he, it, it's something that happened. He was created at this point, and then over here, something happened. He became or developed into this position. Adam was not created uh, in a sinful state, but he himself generated into that uh, estranged position by personal disobedience. He said to God in so many words, I don't believe you. I'm going to do it this way. So God didn't create him that way. He became estranged, and by so becoming estranged, 
We read in Romans 5.12, it passed upon all men, for all men were in his loins at the time of this uh, disobedience. Sacrifice involving the shedding of blood was the appointment by which man can be reconciled to his creator. It's embodied in this total picture. We didn't recite a verse of sacrifice or blood shedding maybe in here, but we must recognize that this is part of our foundation. We must have our feet fundamentally on the ground on this most important truth. We must accept the belief and the promises to Abraham and to David and relate their logic to the gospel package. Some of our uh, prognostications, if we can use that word later on, we are approaching it from a logic standpoint. I can't tell you in the future uh, what the, uh, say, the nation of Israel, whether they're going to get out their military arms and, and go north, south, east, or west. There may be some logic to what we see them doing today and what we've related certain prophetic scriptures uh, bearing upon it that might suggest to us, from a logic standpoint, that they're going to do this. So there's a lot of logic in the, uh, in the gospel as a whole, and we should look upon it as a very logical uh, thing. I've heard the Christadelphians spoken of, and to me it's a compliment, that they are a very logical people, that our religion is not so much based upon emotion or, or uh, certain other things, but, but there's a great deal of logic, which means reasoning and thinking something out and, and uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Show me some evidence, and I'll believe it. And that's the way we want to be. So we must see and believe in the redemptive work of the second Adam, the son of Mary and the son of God, mortal, tempted in all points like as his brethren, requiring redemption along with all his fellows, struggling against the impulses of the flesh and overcoming in all things. We must recognize and affirm his literal dying, a violent death involving the shedding of his blood, his being dead and unconscious for three days and dependent upon a higher and judiciously merciful power to bring about his revival from the dead. His resurrection accomplished through his shed blood, which blood also ratified the covenants of promise. We must appreciate his subsequent role as high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he being told to sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We must believe in and, and patiently await his second coming to set all things aright as we have tried to demonstrate in our earlier references to his second coming. If we are hazy brothers and sisters in our acceptance of proven and evident doctrines, or if we hold to mutations or distortions of the written word, we will miss the understanding, we will miss the appreciation of what is coming to pass in the course of the Son of Man coming in his glory. We will not recite the many errors and fables of Christendom to support this, but we would like to make reference to a, a newspaper article which our time has not allowed us to do. We're going to start that off with you in the morning. Uh, and we've covered the material we thought we'd cover today. Thank you very much. <laughs>